these plants are relatives and kin, and they may have something to offer us, but they also are living on their own as an integral part of our ecosystem. You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to the fourth conversation of the season. Today, we talk to artist and plant collaborator Ellie Irons. Next week, I'll be speaking with organics business owner Mike Sarant before we all sit down for a conversation the following week. Ellie and I talk about a number of her ongoing public art projects, why tough, weedy urban plants are so inspiring to her, and how she's using her work to bridge a communication gap between science and the world it describes. My name is Ellie Irons, and I am an artist and educator. I'm also a PhD student in arts practice at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And I'm based right now in Troy, New York, um, on Mohican territory. I tend to describe my practice as the intersection of socially engaged art and urban ecology. And that um, can involve a whole host of mediums, but often involves social engagement and teaching and learning together as an actual artistic medium. So that can mean walks and workshops. It can mean participatory sculpture. It can mean um, what I think of as public field work. The broad goal is generally to create connections between plants and humans. So I think about the kind of reciprocal relationship between plants and humans as something that is ongoing and has never not been, but that in um, Western society, especially in the last 500 years or so with industrialization and colonization, um, we've really separated ourselves from an understanding of that reciprocal relationship. Mm. Did you first come to that as as a focus as a scientist or as an artist? As long as I can remember, I've been interested in the so-called natural world. And that happened both through my training in environmental science in my undergrad um, education and through my ongoing work as an artist. You know, initially as an undergrad doing environmental science research, I had a hard time understanding that there was any other method or any other end form that I might put what I'd learned into besides a scientific paper. Mm. You know, I wrote my introduction and results and conclusion and charts and graphs and finished that process feeling like 90% of what I'd learned from doing the research wasn't encapsulated in, in the report. And at the same time, I was also doing art and I wasn't managing to fit my full experience into that either because I had an isolated studio practice where I would go out into the landscape get inspired, then go back in the studio and think that I needed to somehow translate that inspiration into a painting or a sculpture and and wasn't finding that satisfying either. The training I had in environmental science and then my ongoing commitment to staying engaged in scientific literature and in in the practice of fieldwork and in collaborating with scientists has led not that I identify as an ecologist necessarily, but it has led some of my collaborators to say, no, you are doing ecology. You should call yourself an ecologist. Mm. And and me saying, oh, maybe I'm an amateur. <laughs> Regardless, it's very important to me that I combine the tool sets. And I think that the, the discipline of art has given me a lot of flexibility to say I can 
work across the spectrum. I don't have to stick to a particular entry point into the sciences. So I can, you know, draw from urban ecology and from restoration biology and combine them in a way that might not be possible for someone coming from a more, I guess, professionalized to be, Mm. you know, kind of a reductive terminology for it. Mm -hmm. Um, At the root of it, it comes down to being open to understanding the world as maybe different than you thought it was or outside of the range of human perception. You know, you can walk down the street as an ordinary person going to the grocery store or I can walk down the street as an artist or ecologist intent on seeing the more than human life around me that's managing to thrive in an urban ecosystem and start asking questions about it. And I think in either one of those scenarios and being asked to shift my frame and to engage differently with the habitat that I live in. So yeah, it's inseparable for me in terms of what what questions I might ask, what I might get excited about. And then of course the output will be slightly different. But I think the the root place is similar. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more and more common to talk about multi-species communication. How do you think that art and artworks can participate in leading this discussion? I've been engaged with the possibility of multi-species collaboration or multi-species interaction for eight or 10 years in terms of actually understanding it as that. Um, That's when I think I first came to the terminology more than human. The phrase more than human means exactly what you think it does. It refers to the fact that the world is indeed occupied by much more than humans, and that we are not separate or independent from the plants and animals and geology and air and insects and materials we exist alongside. The phrase as it is used now was coined in 1996 by philosopher David Abram but the thinking behind it has always existed within indigenous cultures and continues to do so around the world. I came to it through my own artistic practice because I started making paints out of wild urban plants or spontaneous urban plants or weeds, however Mm -hmm. you want to call them. Mm -hmm. And um, that led me to see urban ecosystems in a way that I had never been able to see them before and to understand that the plants that I saw and that I was engaging with had agency. There was just like no question that these plants were shaping the landscape that they were living in. One of the things that art offers a really hands-on way to get engaged with this stuff that I think makes Mm, it sit in you in a different way. So like for me, when I'm teaching pigment, if I can get a kid to touch a plant that leaves a stain on their hand, Mm. um, they're going to have a different relationship with that plant in the future. Just that embodied understanding of your local landscape. Mm -hmm. And I I had, you know, someone leaving a workshop once tell me, you know what, I'm going to tell my mom that we have this plant in our backyard because I've seen it there before and I didn't know anything about it. And now Mm. that it's like I've made pain out of it, I'm going to ask her not to cut it down this year. That's exciting. That's so great. (laughs) Yeah. That's so great. I'm curious to know if you also create work or think about creating work that that functions without human experience as a part of it. I do consider plants as collaborators in my artistic process. So Mm -hmm. I guess in terms of thinking about whether or not I always have a human audience for my work, you could say that in some sense, 
some of the work that I'm creating with plants has an audience of me and the plants. Mm-hmm. And I'm always trying to create opportunities for other people to have that relationship with the plants, but that there's going to be things that happen in the work that won't be experienced by anyone. Thank goodness the map is not as big as the territory and there are still <laughs> there are still mysteries, right? So uh-huh. I, you know, I've had this um lawn redisturbance laboratory project going on for three years. Ellie's Lawn Redisturbance Laboratory Project is an ongoing art science experiment where small patches of manicured lawns become living sculptures. The grass is taken up and the soil is left bare to invite whatever other plant species may take root and thrive without the monoculture of grass in their way. This year, I had six plots um, about a mile and a half from my house, so I would visit them a couple of times a week. And every time I came back, there would be something different and I would have to infer what had happened in the meantime. And the plants know. <laughs> the plants know what happened. The pollinators know what happened. Maybe some of the human neighbors know what happened more than I do. Um, with the Next Epoch Seed Library, which is also the kind of parent project of the Lawn Lab project. Another art and ecology publicly engaged project, the Next Epoch Seed Library is stocked with a unique collection of seeds. Seeds gathered from vacant lots, superfund sites, abandoned infrastructure, and the cracks between sidewalks. This seed library project aims to educate people about weedy, tough, highly adaptable plants that are well-suited to continue living in close quarters with us humans. The Next Epoch Seed Library has an ongoing series of what we call deep time seed burials. Mm. And they are socially engaged with humans in that we usually do them in a workshop setting and we gather seeds from plants that tend to be able to have seeds that can stay dormant for quite a long time and then wait for the right opportunity to grow. There was a, a research project that was started back in the late 1800s, where a scientist was burying seeds in these vials of sand and then digging them up every 20 years. And it's Mm. an amazing project because it actually got handed on to a new generation of scientists and it's still going on. So they're still digging up these vials of seeds 120 years later (laughs) and checking their viability. So inspired by that, we've been doing these workshops where we bury seeds and we decide with the group who buries them or based on some other thing that makes sense with the site Um, when they should be dug up. So the seeds are down there as a kind of subterranean sculpture, but also just biding their time, hopefully staying alive with that little germ of life that's in each seed Mm -hmm. and potentially time traveling into a totally different future. With all of the collaborative projects that she's involved in, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the act of collaboration itself and why it's so important to Ellie. Yeah, collaboration has been something that's sustained me as an artist. Mm. So it's in this very individual way, which is actually what I'm trying to dispel by collaborating. Mm. Um, It's allowed me to keep practicing, which is huge. Um, So as a kind of solo painter sequestered in the studio, I was not a happy artist and Mm. probably would have moved on to do something else if I hadn't started working with plants, which were my first collaborators in that way. But then the plants generated so much interest from other people that I started teaching these classes and that opened up the space of socially engaged art for me, which is not something I would have come to otherwise. I don't Mm. think, I just didn't think it was my way of practicing. And from that, 
I ended up meeting collaborators who, human collaborators, who were mm-hmm. also interested in plants as agents in the world, specifically wild urban plants. And that's what led me to both the Next Epoch Seed Library collaboration with Anne Prococo. Um, that came out of the fact that I reached out to her because I knew she had grown some weeds in a sculpture. She was working with um, cast-off materials that she found in so-called vacant lots. And from that, we hatched the idea of a seed library based on these plants that we could draw from for our artistic practice and then realized all the other possibilities it had. Mm. The same thing happened with the Environmental Performance Agency. I met um, one of the primary founders with me of that group through another socially engaged collaborative artist's work. Dylan DeGive was leading a um, walk out of Central Park, tracing the path that Hal the Coyote, (laughs) the coyote that got found in Central Park, might have taken Uh um, to get into Central Park. So we were walking back out of the park trying to get to coyote habitat. And I met another artist who was really engaged with plants, um, Andrea Henge, and she took me to see the auto body lot, former auto body lot, where she was um, working as a dancer and was like, look at all these plants that are coming up through the asphalt. And we both just started working around that theme and were um, joined by um, Christopher Kennedy and Catherine Grau, who are also founders of the Environmental Performance Agency, in just being fascinated by what we started to think of as weedy resistance. Um, This was right around uh, 2016 and the election of the president who, thank goodness, is about to leave. (laughs) And we were really drawn to other modes of protesting and resisting. We're all out in the streets really wanting um, to find modes of practice that would give us other ways forward. Um, I just wanted to lay that out to give as much credit and visibility to my collaborators Mm -hmm. as possible because, you know, whenever one of us is asked to speak, we're speaking for these layers and layers of all of our contributions. Um, And they've been hugely influential to where I am with my practice now. Um, But I think another thing that I'm interested in is the fact that working on a collaborative and taking on a collaborative name decenters the um, individual genius mm. narrative of artistic creation. And I think that's something that I want to see across the way that humans interact socially right now. Mm. I, I just the kind of crumbling of the neoliberal individual is something that I think is essential to us finding our way through muddling through with as little harm as possible, a harm reduction approach to making it through whatever you want to call the time we're going into, the bottleneck of the sixth mass extinction, the climate crisis, climate chaos, so-called Anthropocene, Capitalocene, towards what one way of framing it, um, Natasha Myers, who's an anthropologist and artist who works um, a lot with plants, is called the Planthropocene. <laughs> so yes. that's this, yes. yeah, the buckling together of humans and plants as a reciprocal, mutually thriving Um, unit in the future. Even though Ellie is working primarily with plants, which involves a totally different form of communication, language is a really important part of her practice. She's interested in colliding terms from different fields, and I wanted to unpack some of the words that she uses often, like weeds, for example, or disturbance, a term used in both ecology and day-to-day life. It is definitely important to me to observe and engage with language both from the ecological sciences or science more broadly that might seem inaccessible and to gather language from 
my everyday experiences and kind of combine them. So it does often involve taking terms that I know have a specific meaning in ecology and bringing them into a context where they might have a different meaning and then trying to make those meanings collide. So an example is like disturbance in ecology. Disturbance has a particular meaning in terms of the ecological process of disruption and the allowing for a new new kind of growth to happen. Like a tr- the classic example is the tree falling down in the forest, right? And uprooting um, some soil, creating gap so that light can come down and hit the forest floor and plants that need a lot of light can grow in that gap. And then it allows for a different kind of biodiversity temporarily until that gap closes up again. And of course, when you say disturbance to someone without that context, it has a negative connotation. And it can in ecological sciences too, but it's nuanced, right? And so when we say in my lawn redisturbance laboratory project, we're disturbing people's sense of the civility and smoothness and um, kind of recreational potential of the lawn <laughs> by doing something that's not that on it. But we're also creating a kind of ecological disturbance by ripping up the lawn and creating the possibility for something new. And so I'm asking, how do these disturbances become productive? Mm-hmm. And hopefully allowing that term to drift from the environmental sciences to its other meaning and then back again. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of um, a term being able to drift between different fields. By the work you're doing, you're allowing it to be a more complicated term. Yeah, definitely. We already know what this word means as it circulates. And then there's this other way that it's circulating over here. And how can we collide those two things? And what can both valences of that term learn from each other? Because I really do feel like it's a two-way street in terms of learning, especially in the ecological sciences where we're dealing often with folks who are really passionate and really scared, Mm. (laughs) concerned, anxious about the future that we're moving into and deeply want to communicate, want their science to matter, want their art to matter for um, changing the way we interact now and the way we will interact in the future Mm. with our more-than-human neighbors and life systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So maybe taking a couple of different terms, one of which seems to come up quite often in your work is um, weeds and both the cultivation of them and the redefinition of them. How are you defining the term weeds and what do you hope to communicate to people about the plants that that they refer to as weeds? So weed is a, a term that I've been engaged with for as long as I've been working with plants. And as I came to work more deeply with plants that live in urban ecosystems and have adapted to live alongside humans, I came to understand that the term for me needed to be reclaimed because I really respect what these plants are able to do. The fact that they can grow out of a sidewalk crack, that they can take all of the abuse that a city dumps on them (laughs) and still manage to photosynthesize and enrich the soil and create these little microclimates around them that are cooler and moister. They've adapted to live alongside humans. They're able to get stepped on. Mm -hmm. And they're so like a lot of the plants that I'll find, like if I step outside my door, I'm thinking specifically of broadleaf plantain, um, which is a low-lying plant that can grow in a roadway or something like that. But if you pick its leaf, it's got the property of being able to soothe skin from like a mosquito bite or something like that. And there's a 
an ongoing reciprocal relationship between this the, that plant and humans, its ability to live with us and to provide something that we can benefit from. Mm-hmm. As they talk through these reciprocal relationships, it's the background buzz for me always is that there's a whole host of indigenous cosmologies that have known about these connections between plants and humans ongoing all the way up to this moment. It's not knowledge that was forgotten in in those cultures. It's knowledge that I've lost as a settler in a settler colonial society. And I'm talking about broadleaf plantain. That's a plant that also has the nickname white man's footprint. Mm. Um, So it was brought accidentally or purposefully, likely purposefully because of its medicinal properties, um, and was identified as a plant that follows colonization. Um, But it's also present as a medicinal plant in a book that I'm reading right now about Anishinaabe botanical knowledge. So it's also got a history with indigenous people in the Northeast. And as long as it's been here, it's been used that way by indigenous medicinal workers. This is a long round roundabout way to get there. But one of the things I'm interested in with weed is that weed is only a plant that, you know, humans haven't figured out a use for or something like that, right? But I, I want to trouble that a little bit and say that how can we find a, a way in the, in the society we exist in right now to start thinking again about these plants, not just as resources, that these plants are relatives and kin, and Mm -hmm. they may have something to offer us, but they also are living on their own as an integral part of our ecosystem. And we don't need to value them in a particular way Mm -hmm. in terms of like, what can they give us, but understand them as reciprocal beings. And that's so basic, even when you go back to Western science, like they're breathing, we're breathing, and we're exchanging. We're actually like tied to each other as beings. If you want to hear from our next guest who will be sharing a conversation with Ellie, join us next week on Our Shared Field to meet organics business owner Mike Sarant. Weeds, um, unfortunately, have a bad press agent. If we called them lawn herbs, maybe people wouldn't demonize them so much. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by Veronica MJ, featuring Matt Engel on synth. The piece you heard here is called Natalia, conceived as an ode to Natalia Molkanova, the great Russian freediver. The piece is describing the chaotic stillness that one can experience when diving deep down into a body of water or sitting atop a mountain or deep in a forest. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara, at Not A Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Leni Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.